there's all kinds of work to be done under the sun. And by nature, when you consider the wide variety of business, uh, some of the business to be done under the sun is uh, less pleasant. Some business, some work is more pleasant. Some work seems more glamorous to the observer. Some work seems or maybe even truly is more satisfying than other work. But any work of any kind in this world that has fallen and under a curse is going to have its aspects of toilsomeness and of, of drudgery and frustration, no matter what it is no matter how, how attractive or appealing or popular a career field it might be, it's always going to have those elements that are just unpleasant because of the fact that we live in a fallen world. An example I uh, would share with you is because um, over the course of my life, I've always thought it'd be really cool to be a fighter pilot. You know, my father was uh, a career Air Force man, and he, uh, he even spent some time in fighters during the course of his career. And, and I remember when Hillary and I moved to Beaufort, having a conversation fairly early on with Marshall. And uh, I remember talking with him when we were meeting at the old building. And um, you know, he was telling me a little bit about his work. And I told him I was kind of envious of him, you know, uh, get to fly uh, fighter aircraft. And, and he kind of gave me a dose of reality, kind of gave me a little bit of perspective. And he, he mentioned in particular that, you know, for every hour you spend in the cockpit, there's seven or eight hours of training, paperwork, preparation, and on and on. So it's not all just jumping into the fighter and doing barrel rolls and yelling yee-haw. You know, there's a lot of really drudgery uh, involved. And so that, that was a dose of reality for me, and I appreciated it. And I appreciated it because it was a reminder to me that it's that way with any work. Because we live in a fallen world. Well, when we looked at the beginning of chapter 3 last time, we covered and, and read and considered that very well-known poem about times and seasons for everything. And the text we're looking at tonight doesn't occur in a vacuum. It occurs in context of what we looked at last week. So flowing directly out of that well-known passage, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck up, and so on and so forth. On the heels of that, Solomon then revisits a question that really comes up at the beginning of Ecclesiastes. If you just turn a page back and look at chapter 1, verse 3, after he makes that famous statement, vanity of vanities, all is vanity, he asks this question, and this is a thesis question of Ecclesiastes. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? And that question appears once again in our text this evening. Verse 9. He asks the question again. And remember, Solomon studied this. He made a careful study, did a very careful and comprehensive survey of everything that's done under the sun. He's seen it all. And again, he asked the question, what's the advantage? What's the profit? What does man gain? 
And what I hope we'll find in this text tonight is that God enables us as a gift to take pleasure in our assigned work. God enables us as a gift to take pleasure in our assigned work. We're going to look at man's business, then we're going to consider God's gift, and then God's work. So first of all, man's business. If you look at verse 10, you see that word in our ESV Bibles, business. It's a word that can pertain to an occupation, a task. Other English versions kind of shed light, though, on the on sort of the nuance of this word here, because uh, if you go back and look at the, the King James Version, the, the old version, it uses the word travail there. The NIV uses the word burden. Now, in your Bible, if you, if you flip ahead a few chapters, look at Ecclesiastes 8 <coughs> and verse 16. Uh, Ecclesiastes 8 verse 16 says, when I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep. And he goes on, but I think there you've got the same word, but it captures the idea of um, tiresome work, work that's repetitive and becomes monotonous and that's wearying to the body. And so that's what's in view here. The realities of work in a world that has fallen, in doing work with bodies that are fallen, working alongside other people who are fallen, and in a world that's under the curse. And Solomon observes that God has made everything beautiful in its time. That's another phrase that probably has a familiar ring to you, even if you've not read Ecclesiastes before, you probably heard that passage, maybe someone has read that passage or read that phrase to you, God has made everything beautiful in its time. And he just got done telling us that there is a time for every matter under heaven. And for every matter under heaven, in its time, God has made everything beautiful. Remember, there is a time for everything. And when we, when we consider that, this should not be a cause, and is not a cause for despair, that somehow God, he's just going to make times for mourning and times for dancing, and it'll all be beautiful in its time. That's, that's not to, to lead us to despair. It's not to um, move us to just some sort of fatalistic resignation about life and the events of life. And it certainly isn't intended to to move us towards apathy. What this passage does is it bids us to trust God and to acknowledge His wise providence. To believe that what God has ordered truly is best, even if we can't see it. Matthew Henry wrote, though we see not the complete beauty of providence, yet we shall see it, and a glorious sight it will be when the mystery of God shall be finished. Then everything shall appear to have been done in the most proper time, and it will be the wonder of eternity. 
It's like Pastor Mark has said on a number of occasions. When in eternity we can look back, even on the things that to us during our lifetimes seem difficult and tragic and hard, we will look at what God did and we will look to him and say, well done, Lord. We'll be amazed at the perfection of all of his plans. The text also says that God has put eternity into man's heart. And you might be looking at a version possibly that uses a different word than eternity. I know that some of the older versions used a different word, and I'm not exactly sure why they would do that. But um, uh, God has put eternity in man's heart. The word eternity there is the same Hebrew word as is found in verse 14, where it says what God does endures forever. God has put forever in your heart and in mine. He designed the human heart in such a way that we have a sense of eternity, a sense that there's something outside this present age. There's something more than just the here and now. God gives us a sense of that. Our hearts were built that way. And not only does he give us a sense that there's something Beyond this present age, he gives us a sense that we have a place in it and that we are moving towards it relentlessly. So our hearts know that there's a realm that transcends this realm that we see and perceive with our senses. We can't comprehend it, or that's what the phrase there means when it says we can't find it out. We can't take it all in. Our finite minds can't take in the infinite, can't take in eternity. We can't find it out. We can't comprehend it, but we know it's real. And I I would point out that that knowledge in the heart of eternity is not just something that believers have. As I say, it's it's a feature of the human heart as God created it. He has put eternity into man's heart. And so what that means is your unbelieving friends have this sense too. They know there's something else. They know there's something beyond this present age. They know, your unbelieving friends, your unbelieving loved ones, know that there's something above and outside of and transcending what we see and perceive by sense. Deep down, everyone knows that there's more than just what's under the sun. But what does unbelieving man do with that sense? Well, there are two ways that I can think of in which unbelievers deal with the fact that in their hearts there's eternity and they don't like it. It makes them uncomfortable. So how do they deal with it? Well, one way is they deny it. That's easy. In their hearts they know it. Just like in their hearts they know that there's a God. But as Romans tells us, They take that truth and they suppress it. They hold it down. They try to push it under and keep it under. And so they deny the concept of eternity and they live by the uh, maxim that this present world is all that there is. We live, we die, and that's it. There's nothing else. 
because the thought that otherwise was true terrifies them. So that's one way unbelievers deal with eternity in the heart. They deny it. Just say, no, that's not the case. The other way is they try to pry into it. You know, even believers do this. And so that's why I say uh, there's, a, there's a sinful way to deal with eternity in the heart. And, and, and even Christians sometimes do this. We try to peek into and pry into things that are not ours to know. What does the text say? God has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. But sometimes we say, I want to find out anyway. I want to figure this out. I want to find out what can't be found out. And this is an ungodly craving for knowledge. Uh, Max Rogland, writing in the ESV expository comment, said this, and think about this in terms of uh, original sin. Think, it, think about it in terms of the fall and in terms of just our own hearts. He says, in a sense, men and women face a similar struggle to that experienced by Adam and Eve in Eden when the Lord placed limits on mankind's knowledge by forbidding them to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Knowledge, you see that word there? One of the characteristic struggles of mankind is whether or not he will gracefully accept such limitations or willfully rebel against them. At least in that sense, every human being faces a temptation similar to that of Adam and Eve. The secret things aren't our business. God has assigned us our business and we do well simply to trust and obey. <clears throat> so that's man's business. It's been given to us by God. So I titled the sermon, The Lord Giveth. Well, one of the things he giveth is our business, our work to do, our vocations, our callings in life. <clears throat> well, let's talk a little bit more about God's gift because not only did he give us business to do, our work is a gift from God. It says that in the beginning of verse 10. I have seen the business that God has given. You may have chosen your vocation. And praise the Lord, if you had the freedom to choose what field of endeavor you wanted to enter, that's wonderful. But ultimately, God was sovereign over that. He has given us our business to do, and it's a gift. Yes, in our work, in this present age, there is often sorrow mingled with our toil. There is often a measure of frustration built in to our labors in this present life. That's what Solomon was talking about back in chapter 1, verse 13. He said, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of of man to be busy with. So there's this element of unhappiness in our work because of the fallenness of the world in which we do our work. But, praise the Lord, through that work, through that business to which he has called us, we get our bread. We sometimes even find enjoyment. 
He even gives us the gift of finding some pleasure in what we do. Or even if it's not in what we actually do, it's in the the blessings that come from our labor. And that's the gift of God. That's what Solomon sees. In fact, he says, that's what's best for us. Look at verse 12 with me again. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Nothing better, he says. In other words, that's what's best. This is God's gift to man. And what does it consist of? We see this in 12 and 13. First of all, what is God's gift to man? The gift to be joyful. And that's a translation of an Old Testament word that occurs numerous times, especially in the Psalms, and it usually comes across in the Psalms as just a command to rejoice. How many times are we exhorted in the Psalms to rejoice? That's what Solomon's saying here. There's nothing better for us to do than to rejoice. Rejoice, be joyful, or in other words, and the next thing, do good. What does he mean by do good? Doesn't scripture elsewhere say there's no one good, not one, and, and we can't really do good? Well, yes, it says that, but um, let's consider the, the whole picture here. When he says to do good, he's referring to living, and, and for the Christian, it, it would be living uh, through the grace of the Holy Spirit, a righteous lifestyle, and on the other hand, avoiding sin. <clears throat> here's what I mean. Um, here's what doing good really has to do with. Turn with, the, turn, turn with me to Ecclesiastes 7. There's a text in this chapter that we frequently use as a call to confession in our morning services because it's a reminder to us that we, that we all sin. But Ecclesiastes 7 verse 20 says, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. So you see the contrast that's being laid out for us here. The contrast between sinning and doing good. And, of course, what he's saying in, in that verse is, there's no one who always does good and never sins. And yet, we are called and commanded to do good. And that, um, that sheds some light on this phrase that we see uh, throughout Ecclesiastes, uh, to eat and drink and find enjoyment. When we, when we see those words, when we see that admonition, eat, drink, enjoy life, it is not a license for hedonism. In other words, it's not Scripture giving us permission to just... Uh, cut loose and do whatever we want and have fun and, uh, and, and relentlessly and wantonly pursue pleasure. That's not what it's about. We're commanded in this verse to have a zeal for good works. There's nothing better for a man that he be joyful and to do good. That's the command. And so in that context, we can eat and drink and take pleasure in our toil. Listen again to Max Rogland, he says, as incredible as it may seem to the person enslaved by sin, doing good is in fact an immensely satisfying and enjoyable enterprise. And our obedience is to be viewed as another of the gracious gifts of God. 
He's saying, in as many words, doing good can really be pleasant, can be really, be, really be enjoyable. So in view of that, in view of the fact that <clears throat> we are commanded and exhorted to do good, then we can come, and with that in mind, we can take, we can take in this admonition to eat and drink and take pleasure in our toil. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. Now, that phrase, eat, drink, take pleasure, uh, that's the second time already that we've seen that phrase or something very much like it occur in Ecclesiastes. And it occurs a total of five times in the whole book. And so that repetition shows the importance of it. It shows us that it really is a good thing for us to be able to enjoy the blessings of our labors, the fruit of our labors, and that God encourages that. Our work is a gift from God. It's a creation ordinance. It's not a result of the fall. The work isn't. The, the, the laboriousness of it and the, the, the the struggle of it and the difficulty and the frustration that our work often entails, that's a result of the fall. But work is not. God created Adam and put him in the garden to work it and to keep it. Work is a good thing. We were made for work. And so the ability to find pleasure in our work, this is God's gift to man. <clears throat> now again, thinking of what lies beyond, thinking of the eternity that God's put in our hearts and that assures us that there's something beyond this present age. For you who are trusting in Christ, for you who are in him, for Christians, an eternity of infinitely better things awaits us. But in this present age, this is what's good. Solomon even says there is nothing better than to be joyful, to do good, to eat and drink and take pleasure in our toil. Charles Bridges wrote, endeavor to enjoy him in everything and everything in him. Not, we're not called to enjoy anything apart from Christ, apart from God, but in Christ we can enjoy everything. then that brings us to God's work. We've considered man's business, our work, in other words. We've reflected a bit on God's gift, but let's talk about God's work now. And as we do, I would bring to your attention, why don't you turn with me to the book of Psalms. Psalm 33. <clears throat> Look at Psalm 33, verse 11. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. You see this, the stability and the solidity and the eternality of God's plans, God's purposes. And compare that then to what we have in our text for tonight, verse 14. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. 
Ecclesiastes, then <clears throat> if you take that thought and contrast it with some of the things we've seen previously in Ecclesiastes, you see these, this really stark contrast, don't you? A, a profound contrast between what God does and, and what man does. What has he said over and over again already about what man does? It's vanity. It's like a vapor. It just vanishes. What God does, God's work, God's purposes, God's plans, they abide. <clears throat> they stand firm. If you're taking notes, write down this reference. You don't have to turn there, but write this down. Isaiah 46.10. Isaiah 46.10. This is where God, describing himself, says, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. God won't leave any of his purposes undone. There will not be anything that he wills or has planned or his purpose that will be left unaccomplished. And Solomon goes on to say, not only does God's work stand forever, but nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. And that speaks of God's providential governing. And in our catechism, it describes providence as God's holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. It, call, it all comes within the scope of God's providence. There is nothing deficient in God's work. And since there's nothing deficient in his work, there's nothing to add to it. It lacks nothing. And there's nothing unnecessary in his work, nothing redundant in what God does. And so therefore, nothing can be taken away from it either. God's plans and God's works are as perfect as he is. And one of the principal attributes uh, that Scripture ascribes to God is his immutability. That's a big word that just means God never changes. He is immutable. And in a Bible study I participated in many, many years ago, I remember the teacher stressing this aspect or this, this um this rationale regarding God's immutability. God is perfect. He cannot change for the better then. If he's already perfect, he can't get any better. And because he's perfect, he's not capable of changing for the worse. And what is true of God in his being and in his attributes and his character is also true of his work. It's also true of his providence, of his plans. Listening to Matthew Henry again, he said, As the word of God, so the works of God are, every one of them, perfect in its kind, and it is presumption for us whether to add to them or to diminish from them. It is therefore as much our interest as our duty to bring our wills to the will of God. And we should stand in awe of such a one, a God who's so perfect that nothing can be added to his work, nothing can be taken away from it. And that's what Solomon's talking about at the end of verse 14. God has done it so that people fear before him. 
We need to reflect upon, we need to meditate upon the perfection of not only God himself, but all of his ways. And when we do, that will instill in us godly fear. The kind of fear that loves God, the kind of fear that worships God and is afraid to offend him, doesn't want to, loves him so much that we want to please him with everything that we do. That's what the fear of God is. Verse 15 begins by introducing another question or issue that's been explored already in Ecclesiastes. Look back at chapter 1, verse 9. Ecclesiastes 1, 9. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there's nothing new under the sun. And that's what we have in verse 15. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been. And that makes perfect sense in light of verse 14. God's in control and therefore, even though at times what goes on in the world seems chaotic to us, the fingerprints of God's consistency and of his order and the patterns of his doing things are visible and evident in all creation. Well, you may have already been wondering, well, what does that phrase at the end of verse 15 mean? A lot of this stuff in this verse, it's very lofty stuff to think about, but it's fairly understandable. But what? What about the end of verse 15? God seeks what has been driven away. It is admittedly a difficult phrase to understand. Um, And... You know, you might be tempted to think, I wish I could study Hebrew, then I could really get into the original language and figure this thing out. Well, I encourage you to do that. If you want to study Hebrew, go for it. And if I can be of any help, let me know. But there are two basic difficulties with studying biblical Hebrew, at least two, two major ones. One is that it's such an ancient language. People have been speaking and writing Hebrew for over 3,500 years, three and a half millennia. That's how old this language is. Um, and because of its ancient nature, some of the meaning of some words that we find are just uncertain, and nobody really truly knows what the words mean. There are a few Hebrew words like that. Great example would be that word you see over and over in Psalms, selah. Nobody can say for certain what selah means. We just don't know. So sometimes there are words that we just don't know the definitions of, and we have to guess. Uh, just use context and make our best guess. But then other times, the meaning of a phrase or an idiom has been lost to us or is unclear. That's what's going on in this verse here, (coughs) which the ESV renders, God seeks what has been driven away. That's easy to translate. Uh, You know, anybody with a basic education in, in, in biblical Hebrew can translate it. The problem is it's hard to understand. What does the phrase mean? There's a note in the Geneva Bible, which, by the way, predates the King James Version, and it explains it this way or offers an alternate translation. God causes that which is past to return, which would play in with uh, what has been, uh, what already has been, uh, that which is, and so forth. Um, but I know you're, you're wanting us to, to know, okay, what does it mean? What, do I, what can I take away from this phrase tonight? Well, here's what I've come up with. Uh, considered in context, 
Man can't find out. Remember, man can't find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. That's God's department. It belongs to him, not to us. He's got it under control. Just trust that that's the case. And so when it says God seeks that which has been driven away, um, that can also be translated uh, that which has been pursued. What do you pursue? You pursue something that's ahead of you, something that's out beyond you. So what's pursued is the future. And God's got that taken care of. He pursues that. You pursue the business that he's given you. You might not find that satisfying, but that's what I've got for you tonight. <clears throat> so, in God's first work in scripture, he created the heavens and the earth. And when he finished the work of creating the heavens and the earth, scripture says it was all very good. And presently, uh, he's going along and in this present fallen age, he's making everything beautiful in its time. And one day, Jesus Christ is going to make all things new. You read about that in Revelation 21. He says, behold, I am making all things new. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. So brothers and sisters, put your trust in the one who does see everything from the beginning to the end. Job said, the Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away, using the old King James language there. And you think about a man who suffered the way Job did, and in the very depth of his suffering, he said, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Praise be the name of the Lord. God has given the children of man busyness, to be busy with, and it is difficult at times. It's burdensome, toilsome, as we should expect when he told our first parents in Genesis 3, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. And yet God, even in the midst of a fallen, cursed world, gives us a measure of joy. He gives us times of pleasure. He gives us many good things. He gives us the ability to enjoy his good gifts, and that in and of itself is a gift. God enables us as a gift to take pleasure in our assigned work. Yes, there are many ugly things that happen in this world. Turn on the news. Look at the newspaper. You can see some of them unfolding before our very eyes. But God has made everything beautiful in its time. And when that is hard to fathom, consider the cross. Just consider the cross. There is no event in all of time that is uglier or more unjust than the murder of Jesus Christ. No one ever suffered more greatly or sorrowed more deeply than Jesus did on that day on the cross. But what do we call that day? We call it Good Friday. Because what man meant for evil, God meant for good. On the cross, we see our beautiful Savior. On the cross, we see the riches of God's grace poured out for undeserving sinners. On the cross, we see the good shepherd laying down his life for the sheep. God so loved you that he gave. Let's pray.
Thank you, Lord God, for all of your good gifts. Enable us, please, to take pleasure in the business that you've given to us to do and help us to fix our eyes on Jesus, believing in you and trusting you to make all things beautiful in your time. And we thank you for Christ, our beautiful Savior. We pray all this in his name. Amen.